Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church Podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone, and today we are in week 26 of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about questions 69, 70, and 71. Now, this week, we're following up on the topic that we introduced last week. Remember, we've moved into the section of the Catechism that is dealing with, well, is dealing with the sacraments, the holy sacraments, or like I explained last week, the ordinances of the church, the things that Christ has ordained and commanded us to do. And and we began this discussion in the ordinances last week just to get a better understanding of what they are and the role that they play in our lives as believers. But today, and for the next several weeks, we're going to look at these ordinances very specifically. Um, there are two, we determined last week, there are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And today, we're going to focus our attention on baptism. Specifically, I would call it the baptism of believers. And we're going to look at this for at least two weeks, uh, maybe more, depending on how much time we have. But uh, I want to start with a passage of Scripture that we're all quite familiar with, I would imagine, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And this is after Jesus' uh, three-year ministry. This is after His death, burial, and resurrection. This is even at the end of the 40 days that Jesus spent with the disciples post-resurrection, instructing them and encouraging them. And He comes to them and He says this, Jesus came and He said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Now, just as an aside, or just to, to set this whole thing up, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means God the Father has bestowed upon Christ the Son the authority over the, the universe, the authority over the cosmos. And then he says to his disciples, as he's understanding his authority, as he's describing his authority, as it comes from God, and now he is giving marching orders, he's giving commands to his followers, he tells them, he tells us, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am or will be with you always to the very end of the age. Now, many of us know this. We're familiar with this. We might have memorized this. It's what we call the Great Commission. And in these few verses, we get our marching orders from Christ we, we get our understanding of what we are called to do as a church in this gospel age. And Jesus tells us here what we must not fail to do in our service to Him and for His kingdom. Now, here's the reality of our, our current cultural situation. There are many things that churches seek to accomplish today that don't fall into the category of this great commission. There are many things that churches want to be known for. There are many things that churches spend their money and their effort and their energy toward. I'm not really concerned about all of that. What I'm concerned about is that if we fail as a church to make disciples, well, <laughs> we're failing to be obedient to the very specific commission that Christ has given to us. Making disciples is the reason we are still here. I've said this before, and I will continue to say it, that the gifts that Christ has given to us, the gifts that God has given to us as His people, as His believing people, those gifts are not intended to terminate on our joy and our happiness and our comfort. They're intended to flow through us to a waiting world who is very much in need, just like we were and still are. And in this passage, Jesus is telling us that the, the teaching that He's given to us, that the, the grace that He's shown to His people, that all of this is to, to not just be ours for the keeping, but to be ours for the sharing. And in this specific passage, there's 
there's only one main verb, uh, and there are three participles, and all of these participles modify the verb. They reinforce the main action of the verb. And the main verb is make disciples. That's the imperative, and it's not a suggestion. It is a command from Christ. That's the main thing that this whole section is about, go making disciples. Now, as we're making disciples, the way we're going to make disciples is characterized in those three participles, the, the go, the baptizing, and the teaching. The way we should read this text is to see the command to make disciples as the one that carries the most force, and the participles help us understand how we're going to do that. First, we're going to go. And you could translate this as you are going, because this, the way that this, this is worded, it means that our going out into the world is going to encompass all of life. And as we are going, as we are out in the world, we are to be making disciples. And as we're making disciples through preaching the gospel and calling them to repentance and faith, uh, we are to baptize them, baptize those who believe. That's the witness of the New Testament. And then we are to teach them all that Christ has commanded. We are to baptize new disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are to teach them all that Christ has commanded. Now, this is our great task. This is what we are called to do. And this is what we must get right as a church. Our charge is to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to urge others to receive Christ, to become His disciple. And the command of Christ then is, is that we should not only inform them of all the things that He's taught, but we should first baptize them into Christ. That's the language of the New Testament. So we should take our, our task of evangelism seriously. We should take the responsibility of teaching and instructing disciples seriously. But this passage also helps us to understand that we should take baptism seriously. Baptism is an important part of this Great Commission, and we should not ignore it, we should not downplay it, and we should not fail to let the Scriptures inform how we go about it. Now, I think it's important to point out that my view of baptism, my particular theology of baptism, and the view that our church, Cornerstone Baptist Church, holds is quite a bit different than the view that's being promoted in this catechism. Heidelberg holds to a paedo-baptist view of this ordinance, which means that they, they believe in a form of covenantalism, which would have them baptize infants in a similar way that uh, Old Testament Jews would uh, circumcise their male children on the eighth day, right? So they believe that there is a continuity between those two covenants. The sign of the old covenant is circumcision. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. And so they practice paedo-baptism. Well, we don't practice paedo-baptism. We don't believe that that is actually explicitly taught in Scripture. We hold to a view that's known as credo-baptism. We baptize those who've come to make a credible profession of faith in Christ. And, and the difference between these two theological views will, will really not come out that much today. It's going to come out more next week. So I'm just giving you uh, something of a teaser for next week. Now this week, we're still kind of looking at the symbolism of baptism, and we're still trying to grasp what these signs mean uh, for believers in Christ. So let's get into question 69. How does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is for you personally? Now, Here's the answer. In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity. In other words, all my sins. Now, we already looked at the Great Commission to learn what Christ has commanded us to do. 
Um, and we learn that he wants us to baptize new disciples and then to teach them his truth. But here's the question, how are we to baptize? Uh, to answer that question, we should no doubt be looking at the scripture. So uh, when we look at the type of baptisms administered by John the Baptist, by Jesus, and by Jesus' disciples, we see a rather uniform pattern. Adults came to hear their message of good news, and upon believing that message, men and women were baptized to show their acceptance of the gospel and their desire to follow the teachings of Jesus as a disciple. Um, Let me give you a quote here from Wayne Grudem. The practice of baptism in the New Testament was carried out in one way. The person being baptized was immersed or put completely under the water and then brought back up again. From the baptism of Jesus by John on into the early church, immersion was the mode of baptism employed. In fact, the word baptizo means to plunge or to immerse something in water. And this is the most common meaning of the term both inside and outside of the Bible. Now, not only does this word give us the picture of New Testament baptism by immersion, uh, but the text itself gives us this picture. For instance, when Jesus is baptized by John, the text tells us that he came up out of the water. And this is only necessary if he had been lowered down into it. In other words, he didn't stand on the, the bank of the Jordan River and, and splash Jesus with water. That's not John's method. He brought them down into the water to symbolize their need for a complete cleansing, a complete atonement, a complete washing away of sin. The Bible tells us that John sought out a place in the Jordan River where there was much water because the mode of baptism was to immerse people in it. And and they were immersing people who had come to hear the message and who were responding to the message. And this text, uh, Mark 1.10 and others, the text of the New Testament, they not only, uh, the word doesn't just mean immerse, but the early church practiced immersion exclusively. As you read on through the book of Acts, you see that the pattern doesn't change from John to Jesus and then Jesus' disciples. Now, the reason I'm pointing all this out is to draw attention to the symbolism, the symbolism that baptism is meant to convey. Not only are these individuals to be those who have heard the message and believed the message, they've received the message into themselves, into their hearts by faith, but they're also to undergo baptism as a way to convey something about their new life and what has taken place in them. Being plunged beneath the water symbolizes our need to be washed clean of our sin from head to toe. They didn't simply need to wash their hands or their heads or even their feet anymore. They needed to have their entire body washed clean from all of the sin that had corrupted them. That's one of the things that baptism is meant to convey, that all of our sins have been washed away by His blood and His Spirit. In the same way that water washes away the dirt from the body, so we don't just clean parts of ourselves, we clean our our entire body, so we need all of ourselves to be cleaned by Christ. And that's question 69. Now, question 70, what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? And the answer is, to be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven my sins because of Christ's blood poured out for me in His sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed me and set me apart to be a member of Christ so that more and more I become dead to sin and increasingly live a holy and blameless life. Now, when we think about being washed, the last thing that we would choose to wash ourselves with would be blood, right? I mean, in fact, most of us want nothing to do with blood except to make sure that ours stays where it belongs, inside our bodies. But in the Bible, blood has a pretty significant role. God designed a way for man's sin to be forgiven in His sight, and it required, well, it required the blood of a lamb to be shed as a substitute 
for the person who needed forgiveness. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament sacrificial system and even beyond that. But in that sacrificial system, the men would place their hands on an animal to signify a transfer of guilt. I am taking my guilt and I'm placing it on this sacrifice. The animal would then be sacrificed and made to suffer the penalty that man deserved. And then the blood of that animal would be gathered into a bowl and then poured on the altar of God as a sign that God's wrath had been paid and covered in full, washed away. And then the blood was also sprinkled on the man to show that the transaction was complete. All parties have been cleansed and connected, reunited. Now, in this way, blood didn't make them filthy. It actually made them clean. The same spiritual reality is true for those who believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. His blood atoned for our sin on the altar of God. His blood also covers us and makes us clean. And baptism is a sign that by our faith in Christ, we've been completely washed clean in the eyes of God and have been set apart from the world to live for Jesus in a holy and blameless life of faith. And I always add, when when we say anything about living a holy and blameless life, that we're not called to do this perfectly in order for God to love us, but because God has loved us, we're called to do this faithfully. Now, question 71. Now, where does Christ promise that we are washed with His blood and Spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? And here's the answer. In the institution of baptism, where He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then later, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe is condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of rebirth and the washing away of sins. Now, what that answer is doing is compiling a whole list of of different passages where Jesus not only commands baptism, but He even explains it. And then further on down the road, some of the disciples explain it as well. And the New Testament is just full of passages teaching on baptism. Um, and, and, and making the connection that is being addressed here in the Heidelberg, that baptism is a sign, it is a symbol of our having been truly united to Christ by faith, and it symbolizes our having been buried with Him, uh, dying with Him, being washed clean by His blood. All of these things are symbolic of baptism. Uh, let me give you a couple of passages of Scripture, and then we'll round this out. In Mark 16, 16, it, we read this, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. That comes straight out of the catechism answer, but it's also coming straight out of the mouth of Jesus. In Titus 3, in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And then here is the symbol of baptism, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And now, Acts chapter 22, verse 6, And now, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Now, baptism is many things, and there's many different ways that it displays and it, and it symbolizes things. It symbolizes a spiritual reality of our union with Christ, of our being dead with Christ to an old life, of being raised with Christ to walk in a new life, of being cleansed from sin by the blood of Christ. It is a beautiful display of the work of Christ in our lives. It is a sign and a seal of our union with Jesus, and it serves as a joyful reminder of the spiritual reality of our new life in Him. And for me, and I hope for you as well, it is a burden-relieving picture that our sins, all of them, have been washed away. 
Now, next week, we're going to continue to study this ordinances and uh, this ordinance, and I hope that you will join me again uh, on Lord's Day 27, and we're going to look at questions 72, 73, and 74. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at cbcwiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cornerstone Wiley, and you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.